Hi, my name is Tom Cheney. I'm a guerrilla filmmaker, the writer, director, and producer of Frostbiter, Wrath of the Wendigo, which was shot nearly 40 years ago as Wendigo. thumbnail sketch. I was a senior in college writing the script. At that time, I think we called it Legend of the Snowman. And I finished the script, showed it around. A good friend of mine, Kurt Ralph, uh, said, oh, you should call it Wendigo, man. Call it Wendigo. So I started to work in the film industry, freelance, worked on a couple of independent movies, saved up the money from whatever job I was on, We'd buy some film, and we started shooting. And so over the course of the next, geez, probably four or five years, whenever we could pull enough money together, because remember at that time, we were actually shooting film, uh, and so that was a huge cost to any film, any production, the film cost was huge. Um, we would get together, get the gang together, and we would shoot. And a number of very, very talented people uh, were a part of this movie. I tried to get in touch with as many of them as I could, um, but there are so many that have gone on to do so many great things, and I thank them all for being a part of Frostbiter. You wanna see a doctor? I am a doctor! Uh, definitely Sam got it going. When I was in high school, uh, I was part of, a, uh, of an advanced film program in Wayne County, and in that program uh, was Kurt Ralph. Kurt Ralph was one of the assistant teachers with John Prusak. And Kurt knew my interest in these horror movies and all of that and said, hey, you got to meet these guys I've been working with. They put together this movie. It's called Book of the Dead. And uh, we're actually almost done. And they're going to premiere it at the Redford Theater in, in Redford, Michigan. You should come. So jumped in the car, went with Kurt and a bunch of my friends and went and saw Book of the Dead and left the theater absolutely blown away. And here was a team of filmmakers, led by Sam Raimi, of course, that had done exactly what I had wanted to do my entire life. And um, so it was very inspiring. Sam later came to our class and talked to us. Just a great man, very funny, very nice, very kind. And uh, of course, inspired me to go on, continue to study film in college. Worked on a couple of independent films that I'm sure were inspired by Sam and his Book of the Dead, which was eventually Evil of the, the Evil Dead, released as Evil Dead, and uh, just started to write a script. And um, over the course of time, we shot that script. The wind whispers, Wendigo. We're here today at the Motion Picture Institute in uh, Troy, Michigan which is an amazing one-year film school. And I teach here, and when I start my class, I tell everybody, I'm the guerrilla filmmaker. I'm the guy that shoots movies on the catering budget of a normal film or even a TV commercial. So Frostbiter was actually largely financed by myself uh, as I would make money out in the film industry working as anything. Set painter, an effects person, motion control camera operator, a camera operator on a commercial, whatever I could do, I would do. And uh, there was a lot of commercial work in the Detroit area at the time, so I was able to work pretty steadily, but of course took all my money and 
put it back into the film. And we had enough uh, great filmmakers around us that were able to jump in on the weekends and we would go up north and put together the crew and shoot. So it was really, no one was getting paid. We were trying to buy cheeseburgers and film and we would go out into the woods or into the cabin and shoot this movie. We did shoot out in the frozen tundra of Michigan. Um, I had a friend that worked later on uh, a very large Hollywood film that I won't name that actually shot in the Antarctic. And he said that Frostbiter was a tougher shoot, um, which is kind of a funny story. But we shot up in the uh, upper peninsula of Michigan in the snow. We shot in the Dexter Ann Arbor area, obviously in the woods and snow. We did have some stages uh, that we, people were kind enough to lend to us. We worked a lot for a company called Illuminations, which was owned by a man named Tom Hitchcock. And Tom would let us come in on the weekends when he wasn't doing a commercial, and we let us build, stage, build sets and or shoot on the stage. We did miniatures there, brought in a lot of the effects people, and it was all between jobs. We would all chip in and do this. Yeah, way before the computer graphics, of course, this movie was shot, like I said, nearly 40 years ago. Uh, I was fortunate enough to know Gary Jones. Gary Jones was a producer on this movie. He contributed a lot of his time and his effort, and he was always there with us. He was making the old man makeup. He did the chili bean monsters. He did the witch. Um, I was fortunate enough to work in special effects here in Detroit, did a lot of effects work again, for the company called Illuminations. And so those people were kind enough to jump in and give me some animation. At the end of the movie, we have the animation going around the cabin and the sparks from the Guardian and all of that great stuff. So really, it was just a lot of very, very talented people that were donating their time because we all had this love of making these types of movies. So yes, we have stop motion. We have puppets. We have full body makeup. The witch was a good friend of mine and full body makeup playing the witch. Miniatures, we did some miniature work. It was a, it was a very, very ambitious movie. We shot most of the movie with our own money, mostly my money. Uh, Dave Theory chipped in money, his family chipped in money. But it was a very, very small budget, probably less than $50,000, $60,000 at the time. And we met a producer on another movie. I met a producer on a movie that shot on the west side of Michigan. And he put this entire film together and I went out there and I did some camera work for him and did some props. And I said, you know, uh, Gary Sorensen, I've got this movie that's practically done. I just need to get some finish money. So I connected with Gary and he raised the money that we needed to finish the film. So at that time, we actually called Kay Davis, and Kay Davis is a great film editor. Uh, she cut Evil Dead 2, and we brought her to Michigan. And so we set up a little shop in Chelsea, Michigan, and Kay Davis came out and cut the movie together. And I'll never forget, Kay cut the movie together. We're all working, doing sound work, all of this stuff. And she turned around to me and she said, Tom, your movie's only 68 minutes long. I said, Kay. You've been here for six weeks, we've been working together, and now it's my movie because it's only 68 minutes long. It's our movie, Kay. What are we going to do? 
So that's when we came up with the newscasters bits that are in there. And uh, so we had to bring in whoever we could bring in, myself included, to play the newscasters, talk about the winter storms that were going on. And uh, another one of the newscasters was Paul Harris. Paul worked as an assistant editor. He worked in the sound team. Paul's just one of those great filmmakers that did a lot on the project. And we played the newscasters. And we extended the length of the movie, I think, to probably 80 minutes or 78 minutes or something. Terrible situation. Casting. So the casting, again, I was very fortunate to work on a lot of independent movies. There was, seemed to be a lot going on at the time here in Michigan. And I met a lot of talented actors. So as I met these people and we got to know each other, I'd say, hey, I'm doing this little project. Would you be interested? And a lot of people were interested. And so we were able to bring in this talent from all over the place, of course, Michigan, uh, but all these different movies and theater actors. One of the, one of the, uh, uh, the actors was a professor of mine in college, um, Tom Franks, and uh, Devlin Burton was in the movie, Pat Butler. Uh, John Bazard, we set John on fire. He was my roommate at the time. And uh, Lori Baker, Lori Baker, who played the star of the movie, uh, we went to a uh, little theater group in Royal Oak. And I remember Devlin took me and we had a couple of auditions and Lori Baker did this audition and she just blew us away. And it was like, this is our Sandy. And so we talked to Lori and said, hey, we're making this little film. Would you be interested? And she did it. And over the course of the next couple of years, on and off, on weekends, and again, whenever we could pull the funds together and buy some film, uh, we would shoot. Ready? Aim. Fire! Ronnie Ashton, one of the nicest people I have ever met in my life. Shut up, Rob! Blow your head off! It's a really funny story because... I met Ron on the set of a film out of, out of Ann Arbor called The Carrier. And he got a part in The Carrier. So I was working on The Carrier as a production assistant and eventually ended up doing props and effects with Gary Jones. It's where I met Gary Jones and I met Dave Theory and um, met this really, really nice guy, Ron Ashton, having no idea that he was the Ron Ashton of Iggy and the Stooges. So I'm forming this relationship with Ron and we're joking with each other and just became really good friends. And somebody said to me, you know who that is, right? I'm like, no, what do you mean? It's Ron Ashton, he's a local Ann Arbor actor. No, man, that's the Ron Ashton. And uh, I just became really good friends with Ron and Gary and um, asked Ron to do this project. And Ron was in. He was in like nobody was in. Ron would be there all day. Ron would be there at 7 o'clock in the morning and shoot till 7 o'clock in the morning the next day. Ron was just a great, great man. And, of course, he ended up getting back together with Iggy and his brother and ended up touring the world uh, as Iggy and the Stooges again. Became a multi-multi-millionaire, so well-deserved and passed away a few years ago, very, very unfortunately, too early. Oh, friend. <laughs> Look, pal, don't friend me. What do you know about that plane crash over there? And what do you know about that guy next to the plane with a major ring around his collar? I remember we were in such cold, the elements were just so cold, and we were shooting film. We were shooting 16-millimeter film, and occasionally 35-millimeter film for some of the background plates. 
and the cameras would only go so long. You know, the batteries would only last so long. It would just slow everything down. So that was one of the tough things about shooting out in the frozen tundra. Um, of course, it gave the film a really beautiful look. Uh, we actually shot the cabin interiors in a basement of a schoolhouse in Tecumseh. A good friend of mine, Bill Seamers, who I met on the carrier as well, he uh, bought this, far, this old schoolhouse and was redoing the schoolhouse. And he offered to help me build this miniature cab, not miniature, but this cabin set in his basement. So we got all this lumber somewhere and we spent a couple weekends and we built the interior of the cabin in his basement. And that's where we shot all of the cabin interiors. Chili. I initially um, shot the chili bean monster sequence and um, built these devil-looking rubber, red rubber rod puppets. Imagine Tim Curry in Legend, right? And they, they uh, we threw them around the room and did this and did that and had them flying around and showed the scene to Gary Jones. And he said, Tom, that is the worst special effect I have ever seen in my life. He said, we got to do hand puppets. So Gary came up with the idea to do these chili bean monster hand puppets. And he did. So we got the gang back together and we shot, we reshot all of the sequence that needed the puppets. And so we got together and using Gary Jones and his team did these chili bean monsters and it became probably the most effective uh, scene in the movie or one of them anyway. So it's, it, we had the sequence where our hero Sandy had to get to this island. All of this uh, stuff was taking place in this island, Manitou Island. And so she went to Duke's charter and she paid him to take her in a storm over to this island because she needed to get there to save the world. Well, we needed an airplane. So at the time, I was again working as a office production assistant on a very, very, very large Hollywood movie called Collision Course. And it was being shot in Detroit. So I worked on that movie for probably three or four months. And it was a great experience. And I would do anything. I worked uh, uh, with Rennie DuPont, the producer of A Christmas Story, was producing this movie. And really, I did whatever he needed. So one day, he said to me, hey, Tom, would you mind driving this check out to Zantop Airlines and giving it to them? They're going to fly Mr. Leno. Jay Leno was the star of the movie. They're going to fly Jay Leno to Vegas. He's got a show and we have to pay for his flight. So I said, sure. So I took this check for $5,000, drove out to Willow Run Airport, met Dave Zantop, handed him a $5,000 check and said, hey, by the way, I'm an independent filmmaker. You don't have an old plane laying around we could shoot in, do you? He said, sure I do. And so he took me out and he showed me this old plane he had in a, in a hangar and he said, you can have it anytime you want. So literally, we picked a Friday night or a Saturday night, went in there. He, he let us lock the place up and let us shoot in this airplane all night. And again, Gary Jones did the puppets and the monster. And um, we shot that sequence. And then Dave Wogue, one of Gary's uh, partners, built the miniature airplane. Later on, at a, on a studio, we went, Tom Hitchcock's studio, 
and we did the simulation of the flying airplane with the little puppet monster that Dave Wogue built, and uh, it all cuts together really well. And that's, again, the beauty of Kay Davis. She did a great job cutting that sequence. It's I'm a huge fan of stop motion. I think a lot of filmmakers my age, in their mid to late 50s, will tell you they were inspired by Ray Harryhausen. And I got the opportunity to work in Starship Troopers, and everybody there at the time in 97 was, you know, inspired by Ray Harryhausen. And we wouldn't have the movies we have today without Ray Harryhausen's work on the Sinbad movies. And so I wanted to put stop motion in the movie. And I'm, me being a huge fan of stop motion, I thought, well, I'll just do the stop motion myself. Uh, but somewhere along the way, I met this young man at the time, David Hetmer. And Dave is just a brilliant animator, brilliant effects guy. And he said, I'll do the stop motion. And so for very little, if probably not any money, because we didn't have any, Dave put together this amazing armature of this creature that I, I had sculpted the original creature and then Dave sculpted the miniature um, stop motion puppet, built the armature, sculpted it, and then did this beautiful, fun animation and brought the spirit of Ray Harryhausen to our movie. Well, I teach here at MPI, the Motion Picture Institute, and one of the things I drill into my students' heads is Whatever can go wrong, will go wrong. And it seems like filmmaking is just defeating Murphy's Law on a constant, minute-by-minute -minute basis. It, what, again, whatever can go wrong, will go wrong, and you just have to deal with it. You have to come up with a way to figure out how you can do what you need to do to at least tell your story. In terms of Frostbiter or Wendigo, specific stories that stick out, you know, it was so long ago, Michael, and so many things have happened since then. I'm not really sure I can pull anything, you know, um, to mind, you know, it's just everything, you know, everything you're dealing with is, you're just dealing with these obstacles. But that's what makes us filmmakers. We're able to conquer them. Oh my God, what are we gonna do? I don't know. We don't have any choices. That's a little bit of a sore spot for me. Um, I met a guy through Rick Chaffee, and this gentleman was going to do this amazing score. And he did. The opening of the movie has this really eerie, cool score as the book opens and you see the old man sitting at the table writing and we hear his narration. But then we brought in this rock and roll element, which is fine and actually is, makes the movie fun. However, some of it, in my opinion, is just a little too loud. And uh, during the sound mix, I mixed with David Cronenberg's mixers in Toronto. We were mixing the movie and we had a lot of the rock and roll kind of hidden behind speakers and, you know, in the background and stuff like that. And then um, Rick came in and said, no, man, we got to turn it up. We got to turn it up. So it became kind of a battle to like not let this become a giant music video and let the story tell itself. Um, so that is a little bit of a sore spot, but in talking to people all around the world that have told me they love this movie, one of the things they love is the music. Yeah, they are a little loud, and actually our very first review, we show the movie, we premiered it at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor, and one of the reviews said, 
fun horror movie, I felt like somebody had a boombox in the row behind me. Um, so it's a little loud. My preference would be to turn the music down a little bit, but in talking to a lot of people, they seem to like that. They seem to like the energy of the music on top of the visual. So we were going the independent film route, which I still go. Um, and I finished the movie, I cut a trailer, and I went out to the American film market. And as you know, the American film market is just a mass meeting of buyers and sellers and filmmakers and, and uh, independent filmmakers and big studio filmmakers, and we all sell and buy movies. So I went out to the American film market and showed my trailer around and showed it to as many people as I could and eventually got a phone call from Troma and they wanted to pick up the film. So we made a deal with Troma and here we are almost 35 years later, 30 years later, and now it's getting re-released. So we're pretty excited about that. So I called the movie Wendigo. It's always been called Wendigo. Uh, it was written, as I said earlier, as Legend of the Snowman, which I changed to Wendigo at a friend's suggestion. And uh, Troma wanted to change the title. And they liked Frostbite or Wrath of the Wendigo. Well, Troma is a very, very successful film uh, distribution and production company, so we let them. And uh, they came out with comic books that said Frostbiter. They came out with... Uh, there were talking toys. I don't know if the toys ever happened, but yeah, so it seemed to do the film really well. I love Frostbiter, Wendigo. It, it's my first movie. Uh, I think I've made better movies since. I very often joke that it is the worst film in motion picture history, but I think it's so bad that people love it. And a few years ago, I got an email out of the blue that I honestly thought was a punk. It said, hello, is this the Tom Cheney that made Frostbiter? My name is Lovisa, and I live in Akranas, Iceland, and I run a film festival called the Frostbiter Film Festival. I named the film festival Frostbiter because I love your movie. And I would like you to come to Iceland in January of 2020, by the way, and be a guest at my film festival. And I, I looked around for the camera. I thought you or somebody had sent me this email and was punking me. There's no way somebody's gonna name a film festival after the worst film in motion picture history. But sure enough, after a little bit of correspondence, this was legit. And Lovisa flew myself and my family out to Iceland for a week to be a part of this beautiful little film festival in this beautiful little fishing village in Iceland. And never in my life had I thought, oh, I want to go to Iceland. Every one of us should go to Iceland. It is absolutely gorgeous. The people are gorgeous. The people are wonderful. Iceland is just an amazing, amazing place. And uh, I'm dying to go back. Um, I, would, I would hope that you'd be able to talk to Lovisa because she still does the Frostbiter Film Festival in Akranas every um, close to spring, late winter, and she shows these horror movies from around the world. And she was kind enough to show my newest film, The Windwalker there, premiered in Iceland. It, it, what, what does Frostbiter mean to me now so many years later? Well, certainly I'm proud of it. 
I really enjoy the fact that people like it. I very often get emails or um, somebody contacting me through the web or Facebook and telling me how much they like the movie. Would I be part of this podcast? Would I go to this film festival? Oh, by the way, we're re-releasing your movie and we're going to retransfer the color negative. And I'm, I'm honored to be a part of it, actually, because it wasn't just Tom Chaney. It was Tom Chaney, Eric Pasquarelli, David Theory, Gary Jones, Lori Baker, Devlin Burton, so many, so many people, David Hetmer, Richard Jacobson, that were a part of this movie, and they're all so talented. And all of them are gone on to do great, great things. I mean, my friend Eric Pasquarelli, one of the producers of the movie, he is currently in Italy shooting the remake of Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh, he is a huge visual effects supervisor. I, I really appreciate uh, Vinegar Syndrome putting this movie out again. I really appreciate Michael putting this little piece together. And I appreciate everyone's time. And I appreciate everybody coming together and making this movie. And maybe we'll do a sequel now. I don't know. My name is Dave Theory. Uh, I was uh, had many hats. Um, all the hats. All the hats. Most of the hats. I think I have a co-producer credit. I think you're at least a producer. Yeah, I don't. Re I don't recall. I was a producer, <laughs> and uh, also a uh, an AD. Certainly, that was probably my biggest role. Production kind of management kind of stuff. Set carpenter. Set dresser. Uh, actor, uh, uh, yeah, so many hits. Dave, you were a partner in the project. Uh, it was basically you and I, I think, from the very beginning all the way to the finish. I don't think there was one shoot that you missed. So talk about the the lifespan of the project. I mean, how many years did we work on it? When did we start? Do you remember the first shoot? I have you, no idea. Tom, you tell me. When? How how long did it take us to I make this? Yeah, those uh, yeah. So it certainly went for a couple of years, and over seasons, uh, we I know we were in post in the summertime in Chelsea, but most of it was shot in the winter. And um, so, uh, as far as the the dates, I couldn't tell you, but um, but it was a long a long project. It was certainly a labor of love. We had a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so we did have a lot of fun. And earlier we were talking about um, 
Dave, you were kind of the dad of the project. You were like always making sure that we were safe because we were a bunch of guerrilla filmmakers out there doing crazy things and trying to get shots that uh, were sometimes challenging. So can you talk a little bit about that role and how you sure. made sure nobody got hurt and or died? Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, <clears throat> I'm probably uh, fairly serious about getting things done and having things in order and all that kind of stuff. That's a role that I play uh, in my life to date. But um, so, yeah, I, I guess I was kind of the set dad to some extent. Uh, and nobody did get hurt. But I was, I, in, in thinking back about it, some of the things that we did on the set uh, without getting hurt were kind of amazing. And a couple of them come to mind. One was, um, <clears throat> let's see, essentially pouring lighter fluid on was it your arms, Tom? Whose arms? Buzz's, Buzz's arms. Lighter fluid out of the can onto his arms. I think maybe we wrapped him in, you know, I don't know how we thought we were going to keep him from getting burnt. But essentially, lighter fluid on the arms and light him up. And, uh, and uh, so Buzz survived that, that uh, torture. We do not recommend that to filmmakers. Yeah, yeah that's not... Not to code. You not, can, yeah, you can do that digitally now, so do not set your friends on fire. No, don't, don't do that. And the other was um, Tom Cheney uh, busting through plate glass onto the set. Um, basically, uh, I'm not sure what character you were playing at this point, but the camera was, it was a camera interior in the, um, in the cabin, and you bust through the plate glass window uh, with your hands. And so, and you didn't get cut. So that was, that was pretty amazing as well. I completely forgot that yeah. until you said that. But yeah. I remember it was John's character. And I was playing your character because he came back from the dead. Yeah. And he busted right. in. Yeah. And how are we going to do this? Well, just bust through the glass. Just, just do it. <laughs> and we did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not recommended. No, that's another one that we don't recommend generally. No, because no. a lot of young filmmakers are going to watch us and we don't want them yeah. doing that. Yeah. I think uh, at the time, you know, a lot of us were working at this place in Livonia, Illuminations, and I I'm not really sure how we all ended up there exactly. But, you know, we, we worked on um, The Carrier, this film that shot in Manchester, and then uh, a number of us kind of evolved into uh, kind of a, a troupe of filmmakers, and um, many of us worked in Livonia and uh, doing commercials and industrials, uh, et cetera. And Tom, you came up, came up with this idea to make this movie, and uh, you know, um, we all agreed. And uh, so you were really, obviously, the driver behind this thing, and we all just kind of grabbed your coattails and ran with it. And um, so, you know, uh, it was, you know, we'd do commercials, we'd be working freelance, and then we'd shoot on the weekends, we'd shoot, at night, um, and so that went on for some time, and uh, and then uh, eventually we ended up in Chelsea, uh, in the Clock Tower building, doing post. And uh, I remember recording um, sound effects with Eric Pascarelli in our little kind of sound stage, so to speak. And uh, the sound of I don't know what we were trying to create, but essentially we were ripping 
raw chickens apart to get, to get the sound of gross, I don't know, flesh, rendering flesh. And uh, so uh, that's the, the one sound effect that I remember recording. Yeah, 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 zombie effects, right? Because as people came back to life and whatever, or the creature attacked, yeah, I remember yeah. that as well. Yeah. So talk about Eric Pascarelli. He's another partner of ours. And yeah, yeah. Eric came. Uh, Eric came back to Ann Arbor from Columbia Business School in New York City, and uh, and um, for some reason he thought it was a good idea to come back and work on and work on Wendigo, and uh, which which was great. So he came back to help us with Post. He was the sound engineer basically on Post uh, for all the effects. He was the recording engineer, and um, and uh, yeah, I forget what what else he was doing at that time. Well, we all did everything, yeah, right? pretty much. And uh, so we were in this building, and uh, I remember the women, kind of down the hall, who had a business in Chelsea, and they thought it was pretty exciting to have these filmmakers nearby. And uh, I remember one particular evening going to the bar with them, and um, the and uh, they're wanting to play dead people in our movie and I think uh, we kind of um, we passed on that we passed on that yeah we had enough dead people we your friends who you got your friends we your friends I think after the carrier basically it was freelance time and that's where we all kind of met that's where I met Eric Pascarelli I think was at illuminations and uh there were, I don't know, two or three different businesses in this one uh, spot. There was set construction, set design, uh, animation, um, Oxbury animation, and then the optical effects. And um, so there, were, there was quite a bit going on there. And, uh, and so it brought a lot of different skills together. And so all those skills were valuable uh, on Wendigo because there was no money. And, and so people just kind of brought those skills to the table and everybody was um, willing and uh, able and having fun. It was all really about having fun. I mean, you know, it was, it's work obviously, it's pretty physical work, but we were all just having a good time. And, uh, and that kept people motivated and, um, you know, kind of greased the wheels of production. That's a, that's a great point. So you also are in the movie. Yes. How did that happen and who do you play? <laughs> How did that happen? I don't know because clearly I, you know, clearly I am an actor. But, uh, you know, how, how did I get that? I think probably I showed up in the set and it was like, who is going to play this part? <laughs> and I think I might have had a beard at the time. Uh, a pretty, you know, pretty shaky looking beard probably. But in any case, so I played uh, the Guardian as a young man. I don't know if the Guardian had a name. He was just the Guardian. And uh, so I was the Guardian as a young man and uh, had the, uh, the raccoon uh, cap and, uh, you know, some kind of leather jacket and uh, placing the skulls on the circle of, the circle of skulls outside the cabin. Um, so that was kind of my one scene, I think. Uh, I, I don't think I had any lines, thankfully. And, uh, but you were great. Yeah, I, you know, I was fantastic. I, I, you know, it basically laid the foundation for the entire, yes. you know. They had yeah. to follow your footsteps. Absolutely. Yes. 
yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. For be it a blessing, be it a curse, I am the chosen one. We spent a lot of time in the basement of Bill Seymour's house in Tecumseh, where we had built the cabin interior. And um, so that was probably where we spent the, where we shot most of the film. And um, so that's, that's a very memorable time. There's an African-American guy. I don't know where he came from, but he would commute to the set. And uh, <clears throat> I think he, he might have gotten hassled by the police in town for being like out of place uh, at the time. And uh, yes, it was I kind of, that, that, that was kind of that. uncomfortable. When's the last time you watched the movie? Have you watched the movie in years? You know, I probably, I should have watched the movie before I came for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> it's been, uh, it's probably been 10 years since I've seen the film. And, um, but, uh, you know, when I, when I do watch it, it's a lot of fun, obviously. You know, it brings back lots of memories, lots of good memories. And, um, and uh, you know, it, it kind of brings back why I was doing it at the time, I think why, why we were all doing it. We enjoyed the kind of the camaraderie of it and the creativity of it. And um, so that, those are the memories that really stick. So the Wendigo, it's big man, real big. Yeah, Ron Ashen, um, special guy, um, <clears throat> met him on, on the carrier. And then obviously he was, uh, he was talent on uh, on this picture on Wendigo. And, <clears throat> you know, like others, um, I probably got to know Ron better after the show than while we were shooting it. Um, I too would visit with Ron uh, at his house on the west side of Ann Arbor, and we'd sit and we'd watch bad movies and um, smoke cigars and uh, have a couple drinks. And um, so, uh, yeah, he was a special guy, uh, lovely guy, really. And um, so he's, he's uh, missed by all, I think. Uh, Wendigo came together basically out of Tom's pocket. Um, there were no resources other than Tom's credit cards, pretty much. And after, you know, after the film was finished, you know, there was some finishing money that came to the picture from you know, Holland, Michigan guy from out, out west side of Michigan. Um, and then, but after this film, other films, Tom and I and Eric Pascarelli, we formed a little company. We got a little office, downtown Ann Arbor, and we were trying to raise money for another, another film, Excalibur Motion Pictures. We were trying to make, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't Rocket Man, but it was- uh, Flash of the Astronaut. A clash of the astronauts. What a concept. Uh, but, it, you know, the, 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 it didn't produce a movie, but it produced um, a partnership. And through that partnership, um, we were able to, uh, we kind of expanded the partnership to include Gary Jones, who had this concept for a mosquito movie. And um, so, so it became the four of us that moved into Mosquito. From that, from that Excalibur Motion Pictures time, um, but at the time it was all you know. Raising money was um, kind of an uh, an art form and uh, a little um, 
mysterious, really, in terms of where the money was going to come from. And, and usually it came in in dribs and drabs, and you'd raise enough money to buy some film and, and move it forward a certain, you know, a certain amount, and, and then, but you're always kind of, you're always raising money. Uh, John Bassard, and I was one of the actors, uh, Hunter, in the film. Do you remember the character's name? I do not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Anybody here can name his character? Dave. 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 It was Dave. Dave that's, that's new to me. I didn't oh. even know. <laughs> so, uh, how did you get pulled into the movie, John? Um, you. <laughs> so I had met you obviously working at McDonald's when we were 17. Yep. And he school, said, high school friends. Yep. He said he was going to make a movie, and I was like, yeah, right, yeah. Because in Michigan back then it just wasn't done, you know. So then I was a college roommate of yours, and you were still talking about doing it and stuff. And then one day you called me up. I'm doing it. You want to be in it? And I said, sure. Anybody else hungry? I am. So then you called me up and said, all right, here's the day we can film. And I said, I'm working. And he said, do you know how hard it is to get everybody to get the day off? We're not paying these people. They work. They go into school. They got all this to do. Nobody can you know, get the same time. I got them all together. You got to be there. I'm like, all right, I'll try. So I called everybody up. Can you work for me? Can you work for me? You can work for me. No, no, no. Tom. I can't get anybody to work for me. And he's like, come on, you know, you gotta be in it. This is it, this is the day. So I can't tell my boss, you know, as a, a waiter at Red Lobster, I cannot tell him I'm gonna be in a horror film. He ain't gonna believe me. He's just not gonna buy it. So finally I just, I called him and said, look, I am not sick, but can I call him sick? And he said, you're not sick. And I said, yes. And he said, all right, since you're honest, I'll let you go. So that's how I got it. And I showed up on the set and there I was. <laughs> Right, well, I forgot that story. I did. It That's wasn't. A great story. It was not easy. Yeah. And then you sprung it on me. I did not know it was going to, you know, set on fire. You know, with your arms. What do you want me to do? He says, just, just wave your arms. You're on fire. And I didn't even know. Do you, you want to do it? And I was like, Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And I, I just, I didn't know it was safe or, you know, whether what we were going to do. And uh, I don't even remember. Do you remember what they did to my arms? I, I think it was Vaseline under the shirt. Was that it? We put, uh, we put something under it, and then we put we wrapped your shirt with cloths, wet cloths, and then we just put lighter fluid on the flannel, and then we lit it, and you lifted it up into frame, and then we put you out. Are you on a cash? Well, Pete's uh, Pauls can do you a deal. And it's kind of funny. Years later, I came across a training video by uh, Michael Caine, the famous actor Michael Caine. He had an acting and film video. It's great. Everyone saw, check it out if you want to be an actor, because it was really good to, you know, be behind the camera, in front of the camera. 
Anyway, he said in it, he said, you know, if you're not sure if it's safe, make sure you ask, you know, is it safe? Is it safe? And then say to him, you first. <laughs> That's what he says, right, in the training video. And I thought that hit me right there, you know, coming back. I should have said, you first. You know, if you think you're safe, all right, you first. But anyway, turn off safe. I didn't feel a thing after. I don't know why, but it just burnt me up, and that was great. <laughs> Alan, put him over there on the cot. Be careful with him. I think the first thing I remember was uh, you saying that uh, Ron Ashton was in it, and I didn't necessarily believe you. <laughs> I was like, wait, is he from the guitar player from Iggy Pop? He goes, yeah, that's him. No, that's not him. So I remember showing up to the set and meeting him, and so really my first celebrity I ever met. And, and it seemed like a big deal back then, not never meeting a celebrity from Michigan, and I was like, wow, this is just some guy. <laughs> he was really nice, really cool. And I was just like, so, I don't know what I was expecting, but Ron Ashton. <laughs> so I told everybody, I met Ron Ashton and he's in the movie. You got to see it. <laughs> so that was really cool. And then just showing up freezing cold in the basement. And where, where was that at, that basement? Tecumseh. Tecumseh, yes, I showed up. Oh my God, it's so cold sitting around doing nothing. And you don't realize I've never been in a movie. I don't realize most of the time it's just, you know, sitting around doing nothing, you know, while they set it up and get the lights and everything going and they're just sitting there. <laughs> Hurry up and wait. So, yeah, hurry That's up and wait. Phrase, hurry up and wait. So then, uh, of course, when you set me on fire, actually, it was kind of cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, got warm. God, you guys just caked me with all this stuff. <laughs> it's all burned up. I think it was Vaseline again you covered me with and the red makeup and the burning. And that actually I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. A, a burn victim, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that worked really well. Yeah, yeah. That was and, nice. And that was Ellen Madeline's reaction to your death. Uh, was his great scene as well when they were not nailing you into the coffin and I don't think you were in the coffin. No, <laughs> I, I don't remember that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, I came back out of the coffin? I don't know. You I, did come out of the coffin in the middle of right. the night. Remember, you became a zombie. Right. Uh, so how long were you involved? How long? I think I just one day. That's it. I showed up one day. We burned me up. And that was it. Oh, really? Yeah, I know. It seemed like I was more of a... Was the first guy to die? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think so. <laughs> one day? That's it. I showed one day. That was it. It just, everyone had so much fun making it, and you could tell, you know, when people out there in the audience are watching the movie how much fun they had because you didn't really have any of this, like, Hollywood pressure and stress. Like, you know, if this movie bombs, you'll never work again. You know, nobody had a career. It was just everyone just having a blast, having a good time. There was no stress. You just show up, yeah, a bunch of jokes and everything. So it was really a lot of fun making it. So I think people watching it can tell, and they'll really enjoy it, too. What's Tom Cheney really like as a director? One take Cheney? <laughs> <laughs> no, that just... was the film days. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He's great. He's so supportive and uh, so uh, um, encouraging. You know, you're not you can, um, put you at ease and relax you and go for it. You know, so. Yeah, now it's video. So take all the takes you want. Yeah. You're there. You're set up. You got hard drives of plenty. Yeah, no, completely like, different. Yes. Now it's perfect. One more. How about, yeah, yeah. Just a final statement on on why you think people love watching this movie so much. Because it's not just your standard horror film. It's got a, a lot of everything in it. It's got some, uh, it's fun and scary. It's got all kinds of different things in it. So I think uh, it isn't just your normal hardcore scary thing. It's got a lot of fun in it, a lot of uh, scary moments too. So I, I recommend it highly. Good night.
Hi, my name's Alan Madlane, and I played the character of Nick, and, and I forgot to turn off my phone, too. How about that? <laughs> yes, thanks. Oh, God, Harold. Harold, your timing is terrible. I'll call you back. <laughs> Jesus. Actually, I had done a play a couple of summers earlier in Ann Arbor uh, called Lone Star, and Ron Ashton was a friend of another person in our cast and came to see the show and was hanging out backstage uh, when we came off, and that was my first meeting with Ron. So cut forward to about a year and a half later, and I ran into him again in a bar. Could be his band was playing or we were just there in one spot, and he remembered me. Oh, hi, Alan. And he said, hey, I'm doing this movie, and I might be able to get you a part in it if you want. And I said, hey, great. And that was uh, the beginnings of it, as I remember it. And did he mention that you would have to pay us money to be in the movie? Well, he omitted that part, uh, and I think I slipped past you guys, because I do not recall having to pony up. I I, uh, I know that's how this business works. I've, I've, yeah, I know, well, learning learning that we were going to be unpaid was a crushing disappointment. I won't uh, I won't um, you know I'm teasing you. The, I think you know the next thing that happened, as I recall it, was I, I mean I don't remember if I met with you guys beforehand, uh, but I remember we were shooting in the farmhouse or the schoolhouse uh, out in Tecumseh, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, that was like a 10-day shoot where I, I slept over a lot of nights there, huddled around that, that pot-bellied stove that barely like heated the kitchen and froze my ass off there. I, I remember that much. Uh, but driving back and forth from Tecumseh that many times, I'm not sure my car, whatever I was driving at the time, would have made it. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's what I remember, the, the bulk of that shoot and then we had our pickup days the one day out in new boston that was beyond belief cold and um uh, am i missing any other shooting days that we had on that was that a night shoot that was a night shoot and i remember at least devlin and i got to come inside because that was the shoot where he and i were running in the woods and i fall down and scream like a little girl, and yeah, and then, and and you know, I you never see me again. And you guys, I think we're planning to write me like a zombie scene, but we just ran out of whatever we ran out of money, film, or patience, and uh, and that was it. Um, but uh, yeah, that that was a at least we got to come in between takes. You guys, you and and uh, Dave were out there dealing with the camera freezing up, I remember, like constantly, because it was below zero, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it was, um, and I remember having to have creamed corn in my mouth to throw up when we found the like half body nailed to the tree. You know, it, it, it was a lot of fun, and especially getting to see it um, in, in Ann Arbor, I think we premiered it, didn't we, at the, was it the Michigan? Yeah, and having a bunch of friends and family there, and, uh, you know, it was the first thing I'd ever done that was shown on a big screen like that. And uh, you you know how it is. You always turn into a little family. And then, as happens most of the time at the end of plays or films, you all just go your way. 
but you kind of always have that connection and sometimes you cross paths again later down the road and sometimes you don't and uh and i'm glad that we're able to do it now because it's a lot of fun to think back on it and i've seen the movie no, oh, I'm not afraid to show it to people. I will break it out and uh, and and show the DVD from time to time if it's the right crowd. And um, so I've probably seen it over the years, eight to ten times, maybe twelve, something in that ballpark. By choice. Yeah. Yeah. I I keep thinking because it always comes out. You know, they repackage it and they repackage it. You know, Lloyd bought it and it all goes down the line and it keeps getting repackaged. And I keep thinking. This is the time they got the sound right. You know, I can actually hear without the music like mowing over the dialogue. But no, no, it's it's just a part of its charm. It's it is what it is. You know. I don't know who mixed our sound. Um, God bless them. They did their best, I'm sure. And uh, in ways, it's almost funny because I don't. I can't think of any other movie where the the dialogue is challenged by the music so intrusively, you know, battling for supremacy like that. It's, uh, it's pretty funny. Um, I remember when we had to do the, the Shemp, uh, what was um, Bussard's character that burns up with the bowl of chili? What was his character's name? Dave? Was it? Everybody? Seems like everybody in that movie was named Dave. <laughs> it was just a, <laughs> it was a bunch of Daves. Um, anyway, Dave number one burned up, right? And, and we had that like thing, like a scarecrow on a stick. Now we're doing this in, we're, we're using real flame inside a cabin built of wood. Like when I think back on that, then I'm like, what were we thinking? <laughs> Could have died. But anyway, we didn't. And, uh, and you know, I remember that because we shot that early on, I think. Um, I remember the day we were, the witch was throwing all the stuff at us and we were having to, you know, pretend we were stuck to the wall up high and everything with uh, pitchforks and whatnot. I remember um, the day with the chili monsters scrambling, trying to eat my crotch and me shooting a gun, which I probably at that point had shot a shotgun maybe once in my life. So if I held it in the right direction, that was a win. And, uh, carrying that wooden coffin out in the snow and uh, and the music that's playing in that scene is, by the way, is, uh, it's colder than you know or whatever. <laughs> Priceless. And um, yeah, I remember surprising, surprisingly quite a bit of it, actually, as, as you will with traumatic events, you know. <laughs> At that point, I had only been acting about five years, I'll say, and it was almost all theater. So, you know, I was getting used to acting in front of a camera and we were doing, you know, live, you know, stuff with, with real film. So if you blow a take, it's going to be expensive, right? So you have that pressure um, that, you, you know, you don't have with digital filmmaking as much. And I mean, it's still expensive when you got to reshoot a scene, but um, for everybody's time, but, but, uh, you know, you feel that extra pressure to like, God, I don't want to cost, you know, extra film where then they'll have to change the film style. <laughs> Everybody will have to wait 20 more minutes. But, um, you know, if I was good in any particular scene, it was totally by accident, probably. It just. No, um, I think you were great. <laughs> well, you were great. Uh, uh, great's, yeah. great's a, a frequently used word now. <laughs>
It was about 88, around this time of year, wasn't it? Something like, maybe? I think it probably was. Yeah, so that's, what, 34 years? <laughs> you rolling? It's literally yeah. half my life ago. So you were just talking about the first day of shooting. What was your first day of shooting? Do you remember? Uh, you know, I, I mentioned it. I thought it was the burning up scene, but now that I think about it, I think it was the chili monster scene with the shotgun. I'm pretty sure that was my first day, which is a pretty hairy scene to shoot <laughs> right out of the gate. Do you but, remember uh, that we shot the chili monsters with the terrible special effects puppets that I built? Oh, I loved them. I, 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 I have a fondness. I know that they got improved upon right yeah, later. Gary Jones but, came in. But I, I hope you still have those other little guys because they were, uh, I still, you know, have nightmares. <laughs> you have nightmares about it. I have nightmares about chili in general. Yeah. Or dude at chili. chili. Well, oddly, the person I, I, I kept in touch with the most was Ron. As if it's not bad enough around here already. You know, Ron wanting to transition into more acting like to have me come over and we'd sit in his little den and I'd, you know, we'd shoot the shit and he'd, you know, pick his brain and he'd pick mine. And, and Ron's stories, you know, from over the years were great. They were captivating, you know, I mean, he had a book in him, you know, for sure, um, that probably couldn't be published today, but he, he was fun to sit and, and talk to. And he was into, got into brewing his own beer and he got into cigars. So we'd, you know, we'd have his homemade, uh, whatever he, concocted that day and, and a cigar and um that was when I could be in a room with smoke and uh, oh the days the days but he uh you know then he, he unfortunately well the the band got big again uh, out of nowhere uh kind of like this movie is doing and um and then I saw less of him uh I saw him the previous summer on Randall's Island when they had a little Stevens garage band festival with the Stooges and the New York Dolls headlining and all these other garage bands and that and then they were supposed to come to the park avenue bar after that and they didn't make it and then the next winter that he was gone and that was it and then i saw you guys it is it is uh, wake there at the at the theater and and that was the last contact i've had with any of you i think other than maybe a little quick email or something you know mm -hmm. so yeah. yeah a long time haven't seen you know patrick's brother timmy passed away uh uh, haven't seen any of those people. Um, what about Tom Franks? That's one name we didn't bring up. Again, not an unusual name, so there's probably a bunch of Tom Franks out there. Yeah. Uh, oh, the day we had to do ADR. Do you remember that? We were out in Chelsea, and I think I had gotten wind that um, Gordy Howe was signing autographs at an Ace Hardware or something in Chelsea. Do you remember this? So we, we were either done or we took a break and we went over there and we were standing in line and I was going to have him sign something. And we looked behind us and Jeff Daniels was in line with a hockey stick. He was going to get Gordy's signature on a hockey stick. So I, I got his business card because I was into collecting autographed eight by 10 pictures and I wanted to get one of him. So I said, you know, how can I get a picture? And he said, well, just contact. And I still have that business card too somewhere. It was a softball team that he was either on or managing, I think, called the Charlestown Clams or something like that. Mm. Yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. I so. That day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember meeting him with his massive shoulders and he was like 75 years old. Rip Gordy? Yeah. Yeah, sitting at a table, right? Yeah. 
And that's the second time in my life that I met Gordy Howe. I met him when I was like 10 years old. And um, my dad got wind that they were practicing at the Livonia Ice Rink. And so he says, look, there's Gordy. Go, go talk to him. So I go running over there. And then my dad yells, hey, Howe. And G Gordy looks at my dad. And he goes to me, he goes, who's that guy? And I go, that's my dad. I was so humiliated. <laughs> like, why would he use his last name like he's on the team with him or something? Just, Hey, Gordy. Anybody else have anything they want to maybe they remember with Alan or questions? Safety, you know, Dave? Uh, you know, no, I, I do remember the um, coffin scene. And, and um, Alan, you were so convincing your emotional connection with this guy in the coffin. Oh. <laughs> I, it, was, it was very uh, good acting. It really was. I appreciate that. I know we had that uh, editor gal named Kay Davis, was it? Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, you, you gave me a nice compliment. You said she, she liked me and she tried to put me in as much as she could. <laughs> so oh, I great. appreciate her for that. That's good. But, but I liked a lot of, uh, I liked Tom's acting. You know, it was, it was a different style of acting, you know, but... Uh, and, you know, and Devlin was kind of a natural on camera. Um, you know, there were, there were some good performances, and there's certainly some unique ones anyway. <laughs> you know, whenever, of course, I read reviews, they're always like, oh, God, the acting was horrible. You know? That's but, what I said. <laughs> it's the worst film in motion picture history. <laughs> well, it, at one point it. it was down there, you know, among the, in the, uh, in, in the you know. Thing, but and then Ron was off on his Three Stooges, you know, like acting thing, which it was, um, it was an adventure. We aren't gonna bury you. I mean, I mean, I can't, I can't bury my best friend. Yeah, you know, they have uh, lists every once in a while of all the movies made in Michigan, and sometimes this appears on those lists if people you know, have deep enough memories through that. And um, I'm always gratified to see it, you know, mentioned or remembered because in the end, you know, as they say, ours longa vita brevis, right? We, we, we pass on, but our, our art lives on. So this particular piece of art, such as it is, is uh, showing amazing legs. I got a, I had a guy write to me for an, an interview uh, related to this and to knowing Ron Ashton um, that's still online somewhere, uh, probably 10 years ago. Um, I had another guy named Nick get a hold of me about this, and uh, he actually put me in touch with getting a copy of the comic book. We had, if you remember, we had this made, it was supposed to be, what, a three-part comic book or something? And um, they did the first part, and then they never did parts two or three or something like that, or they, it was supposed to be two parts and they didn't do the second half or whatever it was. Uh, but I, I managed to track down a, a copy of that comic book finally, so I've got that too. But, um, you know, it, it gives you warm fuzzies that people at least remember it however they remember it. I just found the uh, comic book that you're talking about on Amazon. It goes for around $300. <laughs> no kidding. Wow. Yeah. I well, go through my files. Yeah. <laughs> you can, you can <laughs> always ask any yeah, amount for something, <laughs> whether you'll actually get it or not. Clearly, I have missed out a great deal by not seeing this movie. <laughs> <laughs> you have. It's not no question about it. It's, um... uh, it's okay. I get 
I hit my gore in other areas of life. I can't wait to watch this movie. I would love to watch you watching the movie. That would be the pleasure for me. Is John Bazaar. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming yeah. out. Oh. Hey man, we were just talking about what was your character's name? Well, I don't even know. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> Everybody was named Dave. In the comic book, they got it wrong. They called me your name. <laughs> uh, so, in the end, you know, like I say, we uh, we 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 pass away, but our art, such as it is, uh, lingers on, and and uh, I must say. One of the things that's fun about this movie is is watching other people as they as they watch it for the first time, and uh, the looks of disbelief <laughs> in their eyes. It's a uh, it's a movie that you know was supposed to I think always have a lot of uh, humor in it as well as be a little bit scary here and there, uh, much like the Evil Dead movies were, and um, with that same kind of style of uh, overheated acting and. I think you know we we accomplished that uh, given the the minuscule budget, um, but you know you have people and you get caught up in the thing and it just it's like a train after a while if it gets enough momentum going it just it just keeps going right on and and um, it, it's really fun that it got finished and you know it, the story of it going to the Cannes Film Festival and Lloyd Kaufman buying it all all this stuff because I had seen you know other Lloyd movies. Uh, Sergeant Kabuki Man and all that stuff, so I knew who he was. And, um, you know, just to see the way this thing has traveled and now to, to to find out that there's some little town in Iceland that loves this movie is just, uh, what can you say? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's great. It has a life of its own. It really it does. It has more of a life than uh, most of the actors that were in the film who died in the film quite, uh, quite, quite thoroughly. We appreciate you being here, and we appreciate you being a part of it. Well, I appreciate you having had me in it, and uh, and let's go watch it again someday. <laughs> you know. We'll have a Blu-ray very soon. <laughs> Outstanding. My name is Paul Bradley Harris, and I was the sound editor on Wendigo, as well as the playing the part of Harv Lindquist, the news reporter. Uh, I believe you called me, and I, what I remember at the time is uh, you had hired, uh, Tom had hired Kay Davis to uh, edit the film, to do a tighter edit after he did his initial cut. And uh, I had just worked with her on Evil Dead 2. And uh, so I believe she recommended me as a sound editor. 
but you called me and you were in Chelsea. I was in Troy, so I said, yeah, uh, I can make that hour and a half commute every day for <laughs> months. This was the uh, first thing that I'd been a sound editor on, and actually uh, what happened was Eric Pascarelli, who was one of the producers of the film, he did the sound design and he had set up the whole uh, recording equipment and all the uh, systems you had there. And uh, uh, the sound editor, what my job basically was, was making a list of every sound effect that might occur throughout the film, whether it's people walking and their footsteps or setting a hammer down on a table or whatever, or monster effects. And, uh, you know, laying them out where they're gonna go in the film, uh, finding the exact spot and then recording them and plugging them in. Plugging them in. Well, folks, there you have it. Panic is beginning to spread in the tiny town of Bedford Falls. It was a great experience. I, I loved working on what is now known as Frostbiter because uh, it wasn't a union picture. It was just a low-budget film, and everybody that was there was working on it because they loved making films and wanted to, wanted to make a fun film. Uh, you know, so it, it, everybody could do a little bit of everything. There was, wasn't any kind of thing like, oh, you know, you're the sound recordist, you can't act in this film. Uh, you know, I, since I only worked on the post-production, when you ended up doing some reshoots, I got the opportunity to act in it and uh, play a reporter, and uh, which is, you know, a love of mine, acting. So that was a, a great thrill. But it was just, overall, it was a great experience because Tom Chaney uh, loves horror movies, the kind of horror movies I like. I, I liked it because it wasn't a slasher film. And in the 80s, almost every low-budget film coming out was a slasher film. Tom was trying to make something that, although it's a horror film, it echoes back to Ray Harryhausen stuff. And the fact that it had stop-motion animation, that's, you know, that sold me on it right there. Actually, uh, uh, and I had worked with Kay Davis just previously on Evil Dead 2 right before I came on to this. And, uh, but when I came on to this, as I said, Eric Pascarelli had been doing, uh, you know, setting up all the sound recording equipment and stuff in your studio there, there in Chelsea. Um, and I believe the first thing that I really did, one of the first things that I did, was you uh, asked me to, Tom asked me to, draw some pictures for the opening sequence where the uh, guardian is writing his memoirs and he's he's telling about he's guarded the gate for so long and you wanted a pen and ink drawing of uh, the Wendigo and uh, the skulls around the cabin and then I also did the calligraphy of what he was writing but uh, uh, and I don't even remember how uh, Tom found out that I could draw but however that came up that's one of the first things I did uh, so those drawings at the beginning of the picture those are by me. You mentioned reshoots what you may not remember or what you may not even know is it was Kay Davis had cut the film and we were in the editing room and she turned around and she said to me, Tom, your movie is 66 minutes long. And I said, she said, what are you going to do? And I said, Kay, you've been here for six or eight weeks now. And now it's my movie because it's only 66 minutes long. What are we going to do? And that's when we came up with the idea of putting in the reporters and you were kind enough to do that. Talk about the acting. Yeah, no, that, that was great. And, and 
and I had heard that story. I, I didn't know, uh, you know, that that your rough cut. I think your your initial cut ran around 93 minutes or something like that, and then Kay came in and cut it down to 66 minutes. So, obviously, uh, need to shoot some more material, build it out to a feature length. Uh, so, you know, and, and, and Tom was great about that. He's very open to suggestions. Uh, Joel Hale was working there as assistant editor. And uh, uh, between Kay Davis, Tom Chaney, myself, uh, uh, we tossed around some ideas and came up with uh, that idea at some point of like a news reporter's uh, doing that where Tom would play the uh, desk reporter and I would play an on-site uh, on reporter. Uh, and that was a, a lot of fun, uh, just because I think everybody, the crowd of people there, we shot that in Chelsea, I believe, uh, doubling for Bedford Falls. But uh, uh, everybody there, all the extras and everybody, Kay plays one of the, the characters that I talked to, and Joel Hale is one of the characters that I talked to, and he was the assistant editor. And I think everybody else was just family and friends. And so everybody that was there, you know, to contribute. There wasn't anybody grumbling about uh, pay or credits or anything like that. It was just a, a fun time. Although uh, we ended up, because I was also the sound editor at that time, uh, I could not do the sound recording for the reshoots. And we ended up having some issue which uh, caused me to have to dub my whole sequence. So uh, that was a little nerve wracking because there was a lot of dialogue in just one take. But uh, I wish I could have recorded myself as I was acting. But it was a lot of fun. We were all young. We were all, you know, working on early films, just getting into the business and stuff. And uh, the thing I remember is when I came on the post-production, which was being done in Chelsea, Michigan, that's where Jeff Daniels lived. and. Uh, we did, uh, I remember one lunch, we were having lunch at one of the little diners in town and Jeff Daniels was sitting at a table over across from us and, uh, should we tell him we're walking home? And I don't think we ever actually approached him. We didn't want to bother him. It's his town, it's not ours. But uh, uh, it was just great being, you know, with people making movies and we felt like, you know, he's, he's Jeff Daniels, but we got a kinship. We, we're in the same business, you know. And uh, it was also great uh, working with Ron Ashton, who, you know, I, again, I didn't work on the shoot, but he came in for re-recording and dubbing some of his lines and stuff. And uh, I remember we went over to his house in Ann Arbor a couple of times. And anybody who loves the Three Stooges and rock and roll is okay in my book. It, it was all beautiful, although uh, as the sound editor, it was kind of frustrating because Tom and we were working there in Chelsea for several months uh, without getting paid. Uh, we'd run out of money and Tom was trying to find the finishing money. He finally got it uh, from a guy named Gary Sorensen, I believe. But when he came on, he brought down a music editor who decided that somehow he was going to make more money off a soundtrack album than the actual movie. So he put the cart before the horse and the music mix uh, at the at the sound mix, the music got pumped up over my wonderful sound effects, which are almost uh, unheard in the movie as it ended up being. But uh, uh, other than that, you know, that that was the one situation where I was like, oh, I'm so excited to hear my sound effects in this movie. And most of them are covered by music in the actual film. But yeah, we talked about that. The first review out of the Ann Arbor News was like, 
fun little movie. Felt like somebody had a boom box in the road behind me, you know. And uh, I just, uh, not too long ago, I just watched the uh, uh, dubbed, Italian dubbed version of the film on YouTube. And it was professionally dubbed. Their professional actors do a great job. They're dead nuts hitting it as close as they can. And I think they actually did a remix on the sound because there's scenes, uh, for instance, where the witch is uh, changing the, the girl, the pretty girl's changing into a witch under a sleeping bag or whatever. Uh, I, I heard a lot of my sound effects for the first time, like cracking celery and I was stretching rubber and different sound effects that, so the Italian version may actually have a better sound mix. And that, uh, that actress who played, uh, did the topless scene, I, I, I'm, she was a topless dancer, I believe, or something, but uh, her performance left a little to be desired. So we ended up redubbing her with a friend of mine's voice. And that was, that was fascinating to me because I'd never realized how much you can change your performance by dubbing. I'd always thought it was just to get it, you know, matching the lips, but actually getting emotion into a performance that was pretty, pretty monotone prior to that. I think, and I, I think that uh, Frostbiter is still around. People still like to see it. I think because it's a fun movie. I think uh, uh, they made it. The filmmakers, everybody involved, wanted to make an entertaining, fun piece of uh, uh, film. And I think just the sheer volume of effects. Uh, you know, there's, you got flying serpents biting the heads off of pilots in a flying plane. You've got, you know, a vortex into another world. You've got a Wendigo rampaging and slamming Ron Ashton against a cabin. There's just so much going on. Uh, and, and, and even though it was done on a shoestring budget, it was done with a lot of heart. I'm Harv Lindquist for BDFD TV3 Action News. Back to you, Jerry. My name is Dave Hetmer. I did the stop motion animation for Frostbiter Wrath of the Wendigo. So I had hooked up with um, a special effects shop uh, in Livonia. Uh, I had been interested in masks and that sort of thing, and I contacted them. At the time, they needed uh, uh, someone to run a motion control rig. And I, my day job, I'm, I'm a, a programmer, software engineer. So I was there working with the motion control system, developing that up. And um, we had been working on, the, a lot of commercials went through the place. And so uh, I worked with Tom on, on commercials. Uh, and then um, I don't remember exactly how he became aware that I 
you became aware that I animate or had an interest in that. Uh, and then came up to me and said, uh, uh, you're making the movie, do I want to do the animation? And so I said, sure. Yeah, so I, I, I grew up with a, a, an interest in animation. I, I did the usual things with clay and paper cutouts. And I was influenced by uh, the Disney films, Nine Old Men work, and of course, Ray Harryhausen. And, and all of that was, was part of what um, uh, uh, I really loved to, to, to see. And I wanted to do that, right? And so. Um, uh, as I went on, I, uh, uh, I graduated from uh, uh, clay and paper cutouts, and I started finding the magazines that were available. Because it wasn't, there was no internet then. You had to f find out where to find them and order them. Uh, 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 that talked about how to build an armature, what, what goes into them. Because you never really knew until you saw these things. They were making them out of stuff they found on their basement floor, right? Just, just anything they could use. Um, and I started uh, uh, playing with that, you know, having to build an armature, and, and I was doing work with um, uh, latex, right, mask latex. Uh, and I had put together, uh, at one point, just using a, you know, a, a, a hand drill uh, and, and really cheap steel, uh, uh, an armature, and I made a puppet, um, uh, foam rubber, the whole thing, you know, just what you need to do, and, and uh, uh, never animated, right? Uh, but this was all part of uh, wanting to be be making that kind of uh, uh, magic, right? So this stuff is just the, the fantasy elements and and the creativity and, and watching that stuff up on the big screen and wanting to be able to make it is just really uh, 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 a big part of what I wanted to do. Uh, at its very essence, is you, you you find something that uh, doesn't need to have an elaborate arm. It could be a, it could be a Ken doll or, or you know, something, Lego figure. And uh, you get in a pose and, you, you've, and then you move it a little bit, take a picture, move it again a little bit, take another picture. And the movement is sort of breaking down, say, a walk or waving your hand or something of that nature into little bits and pieces. And then you, and you, and you take the pictures and when you put them all together, in a series running at you know 24, 30 frames per second, uh, you get the you get the effect of motion even though it, uh, uh, the thing didn't move right. Um, and when you put it together enough seconds, you get a, a, a walk sequence, or you get uh, yeah you get a whole movie. You you end up having to move the, the the puppet between frames, but it's your best guess as to how far you measured it. You have the, you, you can bring in uh, uh, gauges where you. you put something, a, a little pokey thing, like this is where the finger was, and I want to move the, the puppet just a little bit, and then should kind of eyeball it. So, okay, that looked like it's about an eighth of an inch. Well, that works. Uh, and you do that for, for all the part of the, the motion, arms moving and, and legs uh, taking steps. Um, and it's all kind of a guess. And it works out pretty well if you're really good. Uh, uh, you know, you look at the old Ray Harris and stuff, all of his stuff was shot blind, and it holds up today. Uh, so it was guesswork, and sometimes I guessed better. And I did other times, uh, but uh, it was, it was uh, uh, you didn't really know what you had until the dailies. Uh, you, you take the film, you shot down the labs, you get it back the next day, and it says, how did it, how did it work? Um, do I have to shoot this over? 
did, a, did, did something weird happen in, in the light? Did I move this tree wrong accidentally? I was bumping past the tree to get to the window to move it. Um, whereas today, uh, like you mentioned, they have tools like DragonFrame that uh, will store the whole thing in memory. And you're shooting digitally now, of course, too. Um, so you get to see the moment you can make it and say, oh, I didn't like the way that turned out. Let's, I'm going to erase that frame. I'm going to take it again with a little bit of a tweak to it. And you can just finesse it to the point where it's um, smooth as butter, like anything that you're seeing today coming out of Leica. What was the reaction? What was Tom and Dave's and Eric Pasquarelli's reaction and Tom Hitchcock when you brought these shots in? I th they had a lot of fun with it because they, they also grew up um, with that kind of a, 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 a enjoying the, 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 the animation, the Harryhausen sort of things. And here it was, they were making it right there in their studio. Uh, and so they're, they're, it was fun to, to, to see it right there. At the time, uh, uh, there was an idea that, that this was going to be a mix of stop motion and rod puppet. And so you'd made a rod puppet that was, I, I don't know, maybe three or four times as big as this thing. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a slush cast latex stuffed with cotton and rigged with some, some wires and so forth, semi-jointed. And so I took that and um, I scaled it down and uh, I made some changes that I thought would make it look a little bit better. Um, and then uh, uh, once, I, once I figured out all the proportions, I made the diagrams for the, um, for, this, uh, for the armature, all the pieces and balls and where everything would go, and uh, built the armature. At that point, I, I don't think I, I think I might have had uh, access to a, a milling machine, so that meant it was a little easier to drill some, some things. Um, better than a, than a hand drill, certainly. So I put together the armature, and then uh, I sculpted uh, this, uh, the puppet on top of the armature. Um, it's amazing. That I, took a while. I even see, yeah, I even see the guy there. Yeah, so, yeah. And so with with the with the with the Wendigo, after I got the sculpture done, I had to cut it apart in order to mold it. So um, I cut off each of these little antlers, and they were in a separate mold. Um, and I cut off. I think it was at the joint between the between the, the rib cages here and the in this uh, in the back of it, and. That tail section was a separate mold, and the back legs were a separate mold. And then what was left over was just a humoid, essentially, with a, with a big thing sticking out the back. Um, so those were all the pieces, and I had to mold it all, uh, cast it all separately um, in foam latex, uh, and then uh, put it all back together and seam things uh, uh, to, to cover up where things. And then these, each one of these antlers, um, you know, glued them on again with, uh, um, uh, uh, and I used some latex to cover up the seams. And these, one of the things that I really wanted to do with these antlers was um, make them foam, because I knew I was gonna bump them and bend them or something like that, and I wanted to be able to, to do this and have it bounce back. This was, uh, this, the, the, the man, this was, uh, had two roles. This was uh, Ron's character and Pat's character. Ron was, I think, a little taller than I am. Pat definitely is a lot taller than me, um, but it's the same figure. I, I didn't add, you know, the six inches difference between the two of them. Um, you just paint job. Um, it's inside of it. It's a. Uh, it's like uh, 
16-2 copper wire. <laughs> just get from the hardware store with some, uh, I think, like 440 nuts soldered to the bottom for, for um, tie-downs. Uh, again, sculpted and cast in foam rubber and painted. And first I used it for Ron, and I believe that was uh, uh, at the cabin. The Wendigo peeled open the roof, reached in, pulled out Ron. Uh, I bashed him against the door and kind of laid him down and walked away with Pat. Then I painted it, you know, a different coat. So it's completely different, completely different look, right? Um, and that was, I think, outside. And uh, Pat was throwing rocks at the Wendigo. Oh, I'd forgotten about that. And so I was reacting. I was, I was making it so that uh, as, with, with all of this stuff, with Pat and a few other scenes, there was rear projection. So this was um, a plate that, that you folks had shot somewhere in some freezing part of Michigan that I was projecting. And so what was happening was, was Pat was throwing rocks and through the camera, I was watching at where they were hitting and I was, I was like making the, 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 the window go racked to being hit there. Uh, at one point he captured a rock and he threw it down. So the, the next thing came in for, for stop motion. Again, all through this time, we're, do, we're, doing, we're doing Wendigo and we're doing commercials. And, uh, 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 and then, then uh, Moontrap came through there sometime during this period of time. And then next was uh, Lunatics for stop motion. Um, and that was, uh, uh, my contribution for that was uh, spiders crawling on uh, Ted Ramey's brain. And also a giant spider chasing Ted down the streets of Flint. I did work on Army of Darkness. I was uh, a miniature mechanical effects. Oh. So um, I, I, some of the stuff that I was on was part of what was cut and not finished. Like there's a, um, a sequence out of ruins where a fight was supposed to happen. But um, uh, there's like the cave in. At the, the, oh, the cave in was also something that was um, cut. But uh, there were uh, uh, the drawbridge, for example. That was all miniature, so I rigged that up to, to move. And then there's a sequence where, where, where Ash mispronounces the, the words. Um, and then all hell breaks loose at this, at this uh, altar. And a bunch of gravestones are flying in the air uh, as part of the chaos. And I rigged those. Those were all miniature. And it was handled um, using the intervision process uh, for rear projection, uh, front projection onto, onto a retroreflective screen and captured in camera. One of the things that um, uh, it, what happens when you first do these things is like you said, "Do I want to do this?" And the question, you know, sure. If anybody asked me, could I? I would say yes. But I'd never done any real animation like this before. I had the um, experience building the puppet, playing around, but never put it all together. Um, but this was just such a wonderful collaborative environment, and everybody uh, that it was was upbeat about it, and and. It was a struggle. Uh, I didn't have much of a struggle. Um, I didn't spend. I only spent one night uh, out on a freezing cold thing with this with this long snake puppet that got cut from the film. Um, uh, but it was just uh, a lot of fun, um, and uh, the, the collaboration with the same crew from to the next commercial to the next movie. It just all it flowed very nice. It was a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience. Good night.